I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Maeve Conran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 14th, 2017. Coming up, journalist Florence Williams will discuss her new book, The Nature Fix. Why nature makes us happier, healthier and more creative. Florence's journey into the neuroscience of nature began, well, you might say, with her reluctant move from nature-infused boulder a few years ago to nature-starved Washington, D.C. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. When you hit your knee, the pain you feel is obviously, well, in your knee. But is it? Mapping pain in the brain has become a frequent research area at CU Boulder's Institute of Cognitive Science. Past research from researcher Tor Wager shows that a sudden pain, such as holding your hand close to a hot plate, fires up different brain regions than a long-term pain, like seemingly uninjured foot that aches for months. Now, CU Boulder postdoc Chu Wang Wu has refined those pain models. Dr. Wu did this by analyzing data from six independent brain imaging studies. In those studies, participants who had been exposed to a a painful, painful stimulus were then asked to rate their pain, while an MRI scanner recorded activity within their brains. Wu's analysis gives stronger evidence that brain regions involved in assigning meaning to an event, whether painful or not, can affect the perceived intensity when the event involves pain. Wu and Wager hope that pain maps like this one will give clinicians better tools for measuring changes to the intensity of pain, and in this way, guide treatments for more effective management of pain. That new study has been published today in the journal Nature Communications. Marvel Comics water-breathing superhero Darwin was clearly named after the creator of the theory of evolution by natural selection. Last week, scientists pushed back the date of the origin of gills, the structure used by all water-breathers on the planet. This discovery means that gills arose only once in the evolution of all vertebrates. For decades, scientists had thought that two very different groups of vertebrates, those with and without jaws, had evolved gills separately. The recent work, conducted by groups from the Woods Hole Marine Biology Lab and Cambridge University, used skate embryos. Skates are close relatives of sharks and ultimately of all vertebrates with jaws. The researchers showed that the gills of the embryos developed from the same type of tissue that generates the gills of jawless vertebrates, like lamprey eels. The last common ancestor of all the vertebrates lived about 600 million years ago. While we may think these ancient little creatures must have been pretty primitive, the finding that they sported the same structures as our superhero Darwin means that they were actually fairly complex. This work was published last week in the journal Current Biology. Wouldn't it be great to cool your house in the summer without using energy or a coolant like water? Engineers at the University of Colorado Boulder and the University of Wyoming have created a material that does exactly that. The trick is to create a material that will reflect light coming from the sun, but be transparent to the heat inside the house to allow it to escape, thereby cooling the house even in direct sunlight. The scientists created a metamaterial with these properties. Metamaterials are engineered things that have extraordinary properties not found in nature. 
It is a polymer film embedded with tiny glass spheres that scatter visible light but are transparent to and can radiate infrared thermal wavelengths. The film has a thin silver coating underneath. The resulting metamaterial is only slightly thicker than the aluminum foil you use in your kitchen. The researchers say that just 10 to 20 square meters of this material on a rooftop could nicely cool down a single-family house in summer and could also improve the efficiency of solar panels. As they point out, the key advantage of this technology is that it works 24-7 with no electricity or water usage. The results were published last week in the journal Science. We reported recently that scientists are planning a march for science in Washington, D.C. Organisers recently set the date, Earth Day, April 22nd. And taking a page from the Women's March on Washington in the cities around the world, the day after the inauguration, a growing number of marches are being scheduled for the same day in other cities. So whether you're a professional scientist, a citizen science, or otherwise a lover of science, you can join the march in your area and stand up for evidence-based policymaking and inclusivity in the science community. For more info on that march, go to marchforscience.com. Sit beside a mountain stream. See You're listening to KGN News Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Maeve Conran. You may think it's a no-brainer that nature is good for our mental and physical health. After all, a walk in the woods or even an urban park picks up your mood after being cooped up inside in front of a computer screen for most of the day. And it turns out... The notion that being outside in nature does boost our mood and even our creativity, and it can be traced back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. A new book by journalist Florence Williams explores our relationship with nature, as well as emerging neuroscience, that reveals just how our bodies and minds are affected by getting out there in nature. The book is called The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier and More Creative. Florence, a former Boulder resident, and that is a big part of her story, will return to Boulder to give a talk about her book on Tuesday, February 28th at the Boulder Bookstore. For now, she joins us via phone from a hotel in Portland, Oregon, where she's on a book tour. Florence, thanks so much for coming on the show. Good morning, ladies. It's so nice to be here with you. Great to have you. So it seems that you took for granted the powers of nature when you lived close to nature here in Boulder, and I know you've lived other places in the interior west, Um, and that is until you moved to Washington, D.C. a few years ago and found yourself, well, sort of starved for nature and suffering from its absence in your life. So talk about how this personal challenge, in a sense, gave rise to your book. I think that I was just spoiled. <laughs> you know, I'd lived for a couple of decades in the Rocky Mountains. In, I lived in North Boulder. I had a trail, you know, to the foothills right outside my yard. Um, it was a great life, as you all know. I'm so <laughs> jealous that you're there right now. Um, yeah, and, and then I moved to this really Euclidean kind of urban grid <laughs> of Washington, D.C., uh, and suddenly that was gone. And and I felt like kind of a cortisol bomb, almost like a stress bomb. <laughs> it just sort of went off in my brain. The, the neighborhood that we moved to in Washington was under the flight path of Reagan National Airport. <laughs> 
and so there was like a low flying jet over my house, like once a minute. And uh, it, it did. It felt kind of like a nervous system assault. And, you know, I experienced this kind of anxiety. I experienced, um, you know, some depression, loss of cognitive focus. Um, and some of that, you know, is just adapting to a new unfamiliar place. But I also began to really um, kind of appreciate what I had lost, you know, which was this um, kind of daily, you know, almost hourly connection to to the mountains mm-hmm. and I and I started to really ponder you know that notion that Richard Louvre talks about uh, in Last Child in the Woods which is nature deficit disorder right. you know was it real was there science behind it you know I, I I went on this journey to kind of learn more about what the science really said about what I was experiencing yeah. When we talk about nature, Florence, it's a very broad term and particularly here in Colorado, as you said, we are spoiled. We can look at our window and maybe see the majestic flat irons or just go for a walk and be surrounded by water systems and and beautiful trees. But when we're talking about nature here or rather when you're writing about nature, can you define that? Is it the wilderness? Is it the mountains here in Colorado? Or is it maybe an urban park right where you are now living in Washington, D.C.? What is it? Well, I've actually learned to embrace a sort of very broad definition of nature um, because I have learned that even small, very small, even sort of micro bursts or micro doses of nature can be beneficial to us. Although I think the benefits, you know, exist sort of along a dose curve, you know, so the more nature, the better. Um, But I really, I like Oscar Wilde's definition, which I ran across, um, which is just this very sort of, um, you know, generous definition. And it's uh, a place where birds fly around uncooked. <laughs> and I think that really speaks to our kind of, you know, affinity for for especially birds and wildlife. Um and and I actually have a whole chapter on bird song and what that means for us. So it doesn't take a lot of nature to give us a small boost. So I guess bottom line, and you have many different studies, what's the minimum amount <laughs> that does us some good? I mean, we're all busy people and granite, like you said, Oscar Wilde's definition is what where birds fly around uncooked. A lot of people are living in poverty and in inner cities or elsewhere, but really for them probably nature is such a luxury. But what what's the minimum amount that does us neurologically, physiologically some good? Boy, that's a, it's a really hard question, I think. Almost what you're asking is, is sort of a, a medicine question. You know, it's like, is there a, a minimum daily required dose? <laughs> and I think the answer is we don't really know. And another answer, and I'm sorry to be elusive, but another answer is that I think it's very variable and that there are times in our lives when we need greater doses of nature. Um, and uh, there are different people who need more nature. Um, kids, for example, I think really need a lot of nature because it's actually how their brains develop and it's how their neurons grow sort of through exploration and free play. Um, and I, I wonder what happens to kids when we kind of stick them in these, um, you know, four-walled classrooms Hmm. with no windows and kind of make them sit there with a pencil, you know, when they're four and five years old. Um, And I I do talk about that in the book. I think it's a a huge problem. Well, you do talk a lot about that, and you describe the dramatic loss of nature-based exploration in everyday children's lives. And there are some very alarming statistics. American and British children, you say, today spend half as much time outdoors as their parents did. And in fact, they're spending seven hours a day on screens. And that doesn't even include the time they're at school. That's right. Uh, Another statistic I ran across is that only 10% of teens go outside every day. Um, and, you know, if you're a parent of a teen, <laughs> you can probably relate to that. 
Um, it seems like technology has kind of stolen their brains. Um, and, and I guess, you know, I, I've had parents come to me and, and are very concerned about this, and they're kind of freaking out and feeling guilty, feeling like bad parents. And I've, I've said to them, well, you know, did you take your kids outside a lot when they were little? And do they like being outside? And uh, they say, well, yes, you know, they loved being outside when they were little. I don't understand why they're just on their phones all the time now. And, and my response to that is kind of like, you know, relax. <laughs> because if you've instilled a love in nature in children early on, I believe that they will come back to it and that it will be a source of comfort um, and, and a source of resilience that you've kind of given them this gift that will last them the rest of their lives. Boy, and not to give more credence to screen time, but I was <laughs> struck by some of the studies that you pointed to that weren't not necessarily about actually being out in nature, but smelling nature. <laughs> For instance, the pine aerosols and the cypress aerosols. So let's say we walk around smelling lavender or pine aerosols. To what degree does that have or does it have similar physiological and other effects? I think that science is kind of in the early phases of really investigating the power of smell in our brains, but we know that it's a very immediate effect. So um, the first part of my book, I really talk about this kind of nearby nature or almost accidental exposure to nature, like what happens to our brains in the first few minutes of being in a natural environment. And smell is one of the most powerful ways um, that the environment seems to affect our nervous system. Um, and, and psychologists have figured this out. And in fact, retail consultants, you know, sometimes you walk into a store and it will smell citrusy. And that's very deliberate because the science has shown that when we smell citrus, we spend more money. <laughs> so the Japanese, I would say, are really kind of ahead of the curve here in studying um, natural aerosols put out by trees. Uh, these are called phytoncides. And uh, Japan has many hinoki cypress trees, which are these wonderful, very redolent, um, evergreen trees that kind of smell, smell like a very strong Christmas tree, hmm. <laughs> almost mi mixed with like pine saw or um, Vicks VapoRub. You know, and you, you walk into these forests and it immediately feels um, just invigorating and very calming and soothing. Uh, and some of the studies have shown that, um, for example, subjects who are put in a hotel room with um, a mister, misting these essential oils from these trees, um, experience kind of a lower heart rate, um, uh, lower cortisol levels, and also higher uh, immune cells, higher killer T cells, which is really, I think, unexpected and, and kind of intriguing. Did you bring some of those on your book tour? That must be very stressful. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I did? I brought gifts. Um, I'm, I'm staying in friends' houses sometimes, and um, I did buy some pine tree scents, uh, pine tree scented soaps, <laughs> and they're great. Yeah, they smell great. Well, in addition to them smelling nice and just enjoying the aroma of that, there's actually something happening biochemically. Tell us a little bit about what, what that reaction is actually doing. Well, our nose is this kind of instant pathway to the brain. Um, and so that's why the response happens so quickly. And there, you know, there are molecules uh, in, in both good smells and also, unfortunately, in bad smells. Uh, you know, I talk not only about how great you know, nature is for our brains, but also the damage that, that air pollution, for example, uh, as well as noise pollution, <laughs> other, other sort of elements of urban life, what kind of damage they can do. And, uh, for example, you know, diesel pollution, it looks like it, it goes, these are big particles that go straight to our brains, um, and, and maybe part of what, what we're seeing um, with sort of greater levels of dementia, um, cognitive decline in people who live, for example, near roadways. Um, so it's a real effect. And 
Um, but the other point I wanted to emphasize is that because we know that engaging the senses can really affect our nervous system so quickly, it's actually very helpful to me, uh, and I think could be to other people, you know, who, who get sometimes very short bursts of nature. Um, and the Japanese, I think, are, are really kind of leading the way in teaching us to um, be mindful of those senses and to um, kind of exaggerate their effects by, for example, like now when I go for a walk, I will grab a handful of evergreen needles, <laughs> even if it's not from a neighbor's ornamental tree, but don't tell my neighbor, you know, and I'll crumble them up and I'll smell them. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, that is an instant source of kind of delight. For those of you who are joining us now, you're listening to KGNU, Denver, Boulder, Netherlands and Fort Collins. I'm Maeve Conran and Susan Moran and I today on How on Earth we're joined by journalist Florence Williams, who's discussing her new book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier and More Creative. You mentioned uh, some studies in, in Japan and Florence, I know you spent some time there and they're really delving into this area as nature is therapy and they have actually a term for it, forest medicine or indeed forest therapy. What exactly is happening in Japan in this realm? Well, you know, the Japanese are, um, as a populace, I would say, very stressed out. You know, they've come late to urbanization and industrialization, um, and uh, it's been this sort of accelerated, um, you know, intense growth in cities. Tokyo has 19 million people. Um, the subways are so crowded that, that, you know, people in white gloves actually have a job to push more people onto the subway cars. Um, you know, there's an incredibly strong work ethic. People literally sort of drop dead at their desks because they're working so hard. And so um, they're, they're sort of desperate, really, to find ways to help people unwind and to help them calm down. And um, so in Japan, the science has really facilitated kind of some intense policy changes in how they manage the forests. So now, instead of just managing them for timber, you know, they're managing them for what they call forest therapy. So there are trails, there are rangers, there are programs um, designed to kind of, you know, in, in a short period of time, um, really help people be mindful, help people um, find their kind of relaxation. Uh, you know, it's not a particularly religious culture. And um, I think nature is, has been long integrated, you know, into sort of Japanese philosophy, Japanese poetry. And now they're like literally just trying to reconnect with it um, physically as well. It's interesting, and it seems on the, well, it's not so much on the other extreme, but you also, you went to many places, but one is um, Finland, right? Where it seems there, and in much of Scandinavia, nature is everywhere. And still, there's pretty high suicide and depression rates, but also this deep appreciation for nature. What, what's, what's going on with the science there? I found Finland fascinating because they also came late to industrialization. And what that meant for the Finnish is that, that uh, actually they're still very connected to the land. The urbanization there hasn't been as intense as it has been, for example, in Japan. Um, and almost everyone in Finland you know, still has sort of a grandparent or a parent who has um, you know, a little fishing shack <laughs> or uh, you know, a little forestry house or a hut. They have these, like, everyone has these little second homes. They're still very connected to the forest. I think forests are something like, they cover something like 70 or 80 percent of, of the land in Finland. Um, they love berry picking and, you know, mushrooming. <laughs> uh, they, they sort of fetishize, you know, the moose in the woods. They just love it. And, and to me, um, 
they they had this kind of almost Waldorf kindergarten-y um, relationship to nature where people really go out and they, they kind of sing songs and they, they are still in tune with their mythology about nature. And, and again, health officials there are concerned with the migration to cities with more time on screens, more levels of depression, obesity. These are things we see in a lot of industrializing countries, um, of course, including our own. Uh, and, and the researchers there now have this very specific recommendation to ward off depression, and that is to spend, this cracks me up, it's to spend a minimum of five hours a month in the forest in Finland. So that's a little over an hour a week that they think people really need to go spend in forests. And you don't have to be like walking or, you know, skiing, which is what they do. Even if you're just sitting in the woods, they have their research has shown that that people can ward off depression as preventative medicine by going into the woods. And I take it this is enduring effect, warding off depression, not just feeling better for a half hour after you come out, right? Well, I think that's another area where the science uh, you know, is still kind of figuring this out. How long does it last? Mm-hmm. You know, does it last the same length of time for everyone? Um, I think it's, it's, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to last that long. You know, we, we need this connection to nature to really um, be kind of constant. Um, and that kind of also begs the question, so yeah, five hours, could that be in one fell swoop or sort of a tincture throughout the month? Again, I think it exists. What I've learned, you know, what people have told me is that there's sort of a dose curve. So, the more nature, the better, and the more time in nature, the better. So if the best you can do is your backyard for five minutes, by all means, do it. You know, don't avoid that walk because it's not long enough. Oh, I only have 15 minutes mm. to go to the park. Do it anyway because 15 minutes, can it's enough to actually boost your mood kind of for the rest of the day, at least a little bit. Um, but if you can get out there, you know, several times a week, once a week, you know, by all means, go for it. This is obviously something more and more countries are going to be addressing as we're seeing a rise in issues like depression, but also an increase in urbanization. And I think in 2008, mankind officially became an urban species with more people living in urban areas than they are in rural areas. So do you think we're going to see more efforts like in Japan, like in Finland that you mentioned? And is there anything happening here in the U.S.? All I can say is I hope we will see more efforts like that because you're right. I mean, the the trends are very clear. Um, We are now a fully urban species. More than half of us globally live in cities. So in some ways, you know, my migration to the city really mirrored what's going on around the world. Um, We are living in the middle of the largest mass migration in modern history, and it's the move to cities. And at the same time, it's the move inside. Like, we're all moving more and more indoors. And I think it's been very little remarked upon. Uh, and if we believe that nature is not only a luxury but a necessity for sort of being our best human selves, we're going to have to figure out how to bring nature into cities where people actually live. I am optimistic that as the science becomes better known, um, as parents insist on more, you know, recess and outdoor time for their children, as schools start to embrace more policies, as architects start to incorporate biophilia into their design, I am encouraged, I hope, that cities will really start to take this more seriously. Yeah, and um, I do know some people, even who live in Boulder and Colorado, who honestly, kind of like Woody Allen, didn't he say, I like nature. I just don't want to be in it. Where they literally will say, I, I'm much more calm and my anxiety is lower when I'm in a city going to a museum. You know, the bugs, the wind, the heat. It's just 
not for me. And what, what does the science say about that? Is that a total <laughs> anomaly? No, it's not. So the science shows that, in fact, there are some people who will never really relax in nature. You know, they maybe didn't get enough of it as kids. They didn't forge that, you know, sort of lovely connection to nature um, or a sense of comfort in nature. And they will always be freaked out. There will always be too many bugs. There will always be too much wind. There will be just too much anxiety. Hey, predators, too. Maybe it goes back to, you know, cavemen era or hunter-gatherers. Well, sure. I mean, nature definitely has threats, you know, Um but we were also designed, we were wired as humans to be able to recover from those threats, which is perhaps why we find so much joy in nature, too, because that's the only environment we knew. So when we see a sunset, when, you know, when we look at the Milky Way, um, you know, our brains are primed to sense that kind of awe, that social connection, then that calm. But I also I think you raise a good point that, that museums can, can also make us feel terrific and, you know, a beautiful piece of music, an opera. The problem is we can't get millions of people into the opera house on a regular basis, whereas nature is there. You know, it's free, it's accessible. If we can figure out how to make it more accessible for more people, you know, it just has a bigger bang for the buck in terms of public health. Yeah, and I'm curious. I mean, you were already a nature lover. You talk about in your book going way back to when you were a kid, going kayaking with your dad, taking all these wilderness trips. Has all this time you spent with an EEG plugged into your brain, <laughs> studying the effects of nature, uh, doing the research for this book. What, what, what has changed you, or do you think about it differently now? Well, I always knew that I found great you know, comfort and joy in, in nature, but there were still a lot of things that surprised me in the course of researching this book. Um, you know, For example, um, science shows that it, that it does actually boost our cognition, and it makes us sharper, it makes us more creative. Um, those are things I didn't expect, and, and because I know that now, you know, there are actually ways I can incorporate it more sort of deliberately and strategically in my life, so that when I'm, you know, trying to solve a problem, um, when I'm, you know, working on, um, a, like, a story that's, you know, sort of challenging, I will deliberately build into my writing time or my problem-solving time, you know, sort of long walks. And I'll, and I'll put them not just, you know, when I'm the most tired at the end of the day, but I'll sort of incorporate them you know, so that it can be more of, more of a strategic break, you know, to make me more productive. And, in fact, that's a very American response hmm. <laughs> to using nature. It's not just about stress. It's about how do I become, you know, better at what I do. It's very American. Well, in the last uh, few seconds that we have, what's the takeaway, Florence, for listeners, particularly parents who are stressed out, that their kids are stressed out watching screens all day? I mean, <laughs> should we be taking that finished directive of five hours in nature or in a forest a month or are there other measures we could take today. Well, okay, I have a twofold message for parents. One is that you've got to get your kids outside, you know, at, at, at an early, early age as often as you can. And then, you know, you won't have as many challenges to get them outside later because they will love it. And, and the second piece is that as a, as a parent, you're stressed out too, and you need it. <laughs> so go outside for yourself as well. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. That was journalist Florence Williams, whose new book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative, was just published last week. You can hear more from Florence about her book on Tuesday, February 28th. She's going to give a talk at the Boulder Bookstore at 7.30 in the evening. She'll also give a talk in Denver on March 1st. That's at the Tattered Cover on Colfax, and that event is at 7 o'clock.
that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is I, Susan Moran. The week's show was produced by me as well and engineered by my co-host, Maeve Conran. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender, Beth Bennett, and Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Paul McCartney. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Maeve Conran. And I'm Susan Moran.